Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Our Keeper in the Struggle. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 16th, 2016. Six weeks ago, my wife and I became rookie grandparents to a baby girl. To be present at her birth was to participate in a sacred mystery. I still watch the five-second video on my cell phone when, still attached to the umbilical cord, she shakes her tiny fists and howls for air with her little lungs. Those next few days I kept thinking of our Christian confession about the Lord and Giver of life. And of the weekly prayer in our church liturgy, liturgy, we thank you for the gift of life, with all its blessings and sorrows, for those who will be born today and those who will die today. I kept thinking of Isaiah, I have called you by name, you are mine, and of Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, before you were born, I set you apart, and of Psalm 139. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. A few hours after her birth, when she was wrapped tightly, like what my wife calls a burrito baby, and wearing a tiny beanie cap knitted by her maternal grandmother, I cuddled her to my chest and made the sign of the cross on her forehead, a precursor to her baptism, if you will. It was a sort of spontaneous and irresistible act. As I did so, I recalled the powerful words of Vicki Flippin of the Church of the Village in New York City. She says, I tell folks that baptism is the church declaring what has always been true, that each of us belongs to God and only to God. The child is claimed by God above all other claims. No one determines our worth in this world or in the next other than God. Amen. But life moves on, and we soon had to leave. Before we drove 475 miles back home, my wife, my son, and his wife, and I huddled together around the newborn baby. I blubbered a short prayer, but that was hard when we were all crying. And what could I pray in good conscience? I know what I wanted to pray. Keep her from all harm. Give her a happy and healthy life. Spare her the pain and sorrow that's around us. May she be successful. Marry well. Get a good job. May she be a joy to her parents. However understandable, my pious wishes don't make for very good prayers. They don't square with the brutal realities of our violent world. Not in a world where Syrian children like Ilam Kurdi, a three-year-old whose lifeless body washed ashore in Turkey, and Amrang Dagnish, a shell-shocked five-year-old covered in blood and dirt, become global symbols of our suffering world. Nobody gets a free pass in life, my granddaughter included. In his book, Searching for Home, 
Craig Barnes observes that sooner or later, hell and heartbreak find every address and come for a visit. So, as I prayed in the hospital room, I opted for the ancient prayer of Aaron. May God bless you and keep you. May his face shine on you. After my hospital prayer, I later thought of a favorite Celtic prayer that has the ring of truth. The love and affection of the angels be to you. The love and affection of the saints be to you. The love and affection of heaven be to you, to guard you and to cherish you. I can't pray or expect that my granddaughter will be spared the brokenness of life. But I can pray that our Creator and Heavenly Father will guard her, keep her, protect her, and watch over her in the midst of it all. In the words of the Lord's Prayer, I pray not that God will save her from the times of trial, but that he will keep her in the midst of those trials. And that's the sentiment of this week's psalm, which for good reasons is one of the most famous and favorite passages in all of Scripture. I'll quote the New American Standard Version because its literal rendition of the original Hebrew, however linguistically awkward, retains the word about God keeping us. Six times it says that God keeps us. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. From this time forth, and forever. In Genesis 32 for this week, Jacob struggles all night with God by the river Jabbok. I thought of this story when at dinner last week our neighbor said something that stuck with me. She said, I believe in the struggle. And indeed, God blessed Jacob in his struggle. In the epistle this week, Paul recounts his way of life in his many sufferings. And then, in the Gospel of Luke 18, Jesus acknowledges that quitting the journey is a real possibility. He was, after all, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. His own cry of dereliction expressed the specter of defeat. Even he was tempted to pray, Save me from this hour. Jesus encourages us in the parable always to pray and not give up. He tells a story about a persistent widow who importuned a corrupt judge. She never gave up despite the many injustices she experienced at the hand of the judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. There's no mysterious meaning here. The parable is straightforward. Despite our feelings of futility in our violent and broken world, don't give up. 
Keep praying. Keep marching to the end, writes Bernanos in Diary of a Country Priest, and try to end up quietly at the roadside without shedding your equipment. So that's my prayer for my granddaughter, that God would keep her in the struggle and that she would keep on to the end in the light of his promise. For books this week, we have a guest book review by Brad Keister. The title of the book is C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, a Biography. The author of the book is George Marsden, Princeton, Princeton University Press, 2016. This book is 280 pages. This book forms part of a series from Princeton University Press that's entitled Lives of Great Religious Books, ranging from the I Ching to Augustine's Confessions. George Marsden, the author of A Short Life of Jonathan Edwards and another book, The Soul of the American University, chronicles the background behind this well-known book by C.S. Lewis, its rise in popularity and endeavors to understand its endurance. Mere Christianity has its roots in a series of radio addresses that C.S. Lewis agreed to give at the behest of the BBC beginning in 1941, when Great Britain was fighting for its life alone against the German air war. His approach deliberately avoided an academic gloss that one might normally expect from an Oxford don and also steered clear of sectarian questions. His intended audience was the typical radio listener, with the radio being a somewhat new medium at that time, and his purpose to communicate what he saw as the weighty issues of life, often drawn into sharp focus in those years of German bombardment, and to do so in a vernacular language that would connect to his audience. The first set of broadcasts led to a second and third, and were popular with listeners to the point where Lewis compiled them into a book. Reception of this book was mixed from the very beginning. Critics on the liberal side regarded it as an attempt, accompanied by poor scholarship, by the way, to return to an unenlightened error of the past. Conservatives, on the other hand, often saw themselves aligned with portions of Lewis's reasoning, but were determined to quote-unquote fix portions that each considered to be outside proper orthodoxy. Yet among all varieties of critics, there were those who considered the book to be refreshing, the right voice at the right time. And readership soared into the 1950s and 60s, more so in the United States than Britain, and now across the world. In each decade since publication, many critics have predicted that mere Christianity would soon fade into oblivion. Many also agree that there are pieces of the book that could stand revision, and Lewis himself made alterations between editions. Yet its foundational message endures in the unrecorded lives of many, as well as in publicly known figures such as Francis Collins, former head of the Human Genome Project, and now director of the National Institute of Health. 
the novelist Walker Percy and Bono of the music group U2. In his closing chapter, George Morrison sets forth seven elements of what he sees as the lasting vitality of mere Christianity. Here, for example, is number two. C.S. Lewis uses common human nature as the point of contact with his audience. Only time will tell. A few decades is a small fraction of the age of many of the other books in the Princeton University Press series. And mere Christianity faces an inherent dilemma of longevity. As Lewis intended to communicate what he saw as timeless questions and their possible answers in a language that was comfortable in its own day and time. The title of the book, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, a Biography, and the author, George Marsden. For movies this week, I review a documentary film called Rink, Rick Linklater, Dream is Destiny, from the year 2016. Rick Linklater, who was born in 1960, has been one of the few truly independent writers, producers, and directors who has flourished making movies outside of the commercial and formulaic confines of New York and Los Angeles. In 2015, Time Magazine listed him as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Raised in Huntsville, Texas, Linklater moved to Austin where he has remained ever since and made about 25 films in the last 30 years. Linklater's films typically defy a traditional narrative structure. Rather, they are about time, place, relationships, and the power of a single moment in time, however banal it might seem on the surface, like getting a haircut or your first day in school two very powerful scenes in his movie, Boyhood. His movie, Slacker, made for $23,000, pretty much put that word in the dictionary and defined the zeitgeist of Generation X that cared more about talking than working. Roger Ebert compared Linklater's films to anthropology. That is, they explore how real people think, act, behave, and dress. This documentary film interviews Linklater, along with actors who have worked with him, namely Ethan Hawke, Jack Black, and Matthew McConaughey, who, by the way, is a fellow Texan, and also critics, family, and then combines them with clips from his movies and footage of his sets. Linklater himself comes across as a likable and self-effacing artist, a real person, if you will. In other words, his cinematic message is rooted in the man himself. A film that movie buffs will like. Once again, the title, Rick Linklater, Dream is Destiny, from the year 2016. And finally, for poetry this week, we continue our series by Denise Levertov, 
Denise Levertov lived from 1923 to 1997. The title of this poem is Suspended. I had grasped God's garment in the void, but my hand slipped on the rich silk of it. The everlasting arms my sister liked to remember must have upheld my leaden weight from falling. Even so, for though I claw at empty air and feel nothing, no embrace, I have not plummeted. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 16th, 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.